And hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I've got a special guest on the show, a longtime friend of mine, Mark Rash. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, G. Mark. I, you know, I could spend the whole 45 minutes talking about just all the great things you've done, but there's probably more we could get to. So tell me a little bit, I guess, about your background. You're, you're an attorney, you're a cybersecurity expert, you had worked at Justice. Um, now t- tell me a couple of cool things about yourself. So, well, I started my career back in the early 1980s prosecuting uh, computer crime cases. <clears throat> so I prosecuted computer hacker cases back in the days of dial-up and the, the early days of the Internet. Some of the cases I worked on included uh, Kevin Mitnick, Kevin Paulson, the Hanover computer hackers, uh, the Cuckoo's Egg case. Uh, and then I prosecuted Robert Morris, the Internet worm case from Cornell. So that back day, in those days, you know, we were basically making it up as we went along. So we had to write a computer crime statute. We had to write rules of evidence. We had to write rules for, for seizure of um, electronic records. We had to write data privacy laws and things like that. All that stuff was brand new uh, at the time. So it was really kind of Wild West days on both sides of it, both for the practitioners that were out there and, if you will, the hackers, as well as, uh, well, if you will, uh, the legal system and law enforcement trying to figure out how do we go ahead and rein everything in a little bit. Well, that's true. And, you know, we, we always worked by analogy. So we we wrote rules for email that were based on the rules that we had in the past for mail. And we wrote rules for publications online based on the defamation rules that we had for publication. And it was always an ill fit, but we, we just basically muddled through. And when you think about it, you think about what's on, on the books today, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986 Six. as amended. And if you go back and you take a look at what operating system was current back then, I think it was DOS 3.1. So, so it was kind of interesting because the, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986 was actually an amendment itself of a computer crime statute that was passed in 1984. And the 1984 statute was so poorly written and so poorly adapted to what we needed to do that... Um, we issued a directive out of Maine Justice that nobody was to use it until we could get it fixed. Now, of course, you're not really in a position to fix it. That's got to go to Congress. So, you know, we'll fast forward again to uh, the now second decade, actually third decade of the 21st century when you think about it. And uh, how are we doing? Uh, do we have uh, a Congress that's putting together a nice, comprehensive, up-to-date, clean, neat, legal system that's going to make it work for the next 30 years or, or not e- not even close i'll give you an example though i mean one of the things we did in the computer fraud and abuse act is we looked at the question of hacking and you know we can't even get a definition of what hacking is what do we mean by hacking what is it what is about hacking that makes it a crime so we focused uh, in the statute and we still focus today when we talk about computer hacking on unauthorized access, unauthorized use, okay, exceeding permission. But that's a really ill-fitting thing to use when you're talking about a crime. Because, yeah, we we talk about exceeding authorization uh, when we talk about trespass, you know. But even when we talk about physical trespass in a physical building, it's a really tough 
uh, thing to figure out. So, for example, you and I arranged to meet in a hotel lobby. Neither of us are staying at that hotel. Are we trespassing? No. Why not? Well, I don't know, but, but because it's a business meeting and they'll let us do it, right? But on the other hand, it, let's just say you decide you're going to take a nap and you're going to sleep in the hotel lobby. All right? Now, maybe you are trespassing. So we have trespass laws in the physical environment that deal with trespassing because you're in a place you're not supposed to be. Trespassing because you're doing a thing you're not supposed to do. Uh, trespassing because we've given you permission to do one thing but not another thing. Okay? Now, when you when you take that over to the the logical environment, the computer crime uh, statute, now all of a sudden people who are violating terms of service, violating terms of use, doing something that they're not strictly permitted to do are committing crimes. And now you end up with 40-page terms of service that dictate whether or not we're a criminal or not. Yeah, and then and you take a look at these EULAs or end-user license agreements. It's one of these things that you kind of—it's almost like a congressional bill now. Nobody ever gets through it. You have to accept it to see what's in it. And uh, yeah, every time you update your iPhone, for example, you're inundated with this huge wall of legalese that's defining whether you can or can't do this. But I mean, for the average person, do they really care? I mean. I, I, is this only really a law that's working at the absolute edges of behavior, or is this going to? Yeah, start people don't. Day -to -day? People don't really tailor the behavior. There's a general sense of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable online. But let me give you an example. So a couple of years ago, a, uh, a police officer in Georgia was working uh, uh, as a police officer, and he had access to the Georgia database, the, the, uh, the equivalent, the Georgia equivalent of the NCIC database, uh, National Crime Information Computer. So you could look people up and things like that. And the database had a requirement that said that you could only access the database for authorized law enforcement purposes. It was public data, arrest data, things like that. But the reason police had access to it was because they were acting as police. And this officer decided to use the access that he was granted uh, by permission uh, as a police officer to access data for other reasons. So, for example, let's assume that police officer sees an attractive woman driving down the street, gets her license plate number, runs her plate. Question is, when he accesses the computer for a non-law enforcement purpose, is that something that for which he could be fired? Sure. But is that a crime? Is that a trespass? Is that a exceeding the scope of authorization to access a computer? And that was a case the Supreme Court decided last year. And the Supreme Court said that the computer crime statute was intended to punish hackers. And whatever this guy is, even though he had, he had authorized access to the computer, but albeit for limited purposes. And whatever else he is, he's not a hacker. And said, could not he could not be prosecuted for that? So it's interesting. So it suggests then that they're kind of almost pre-classifying people based not necessarily on their behavior, but their roles and responsibilities. So what if you were to walk this over to something like you know Aaron Schwartz? So right. A lot of, yeah. I mean, so for people who aren't familiar with it, a brilliant young man developed a RSS 
created a whole bunch of things and felt that a lot of this research that was behind a paywall, which was basically publicly available, should be made publicly available. And, so Schwartz did a couple of things that were interesting. You know, first of all, Schwartz's real crime, to the extent there was one, was a co- infringing copyright. And what you had is you had this, this database called JSTOR. And JSTOR was a database of published articles. And JSTOR had a business model that you had to pay a lot of money to get access to these published articles. On the other hand, companies like MIT, institutions like MIT and other academic institutions had access to JSTOR for free. So if you were an academic, you could access this stuff for free. So the question then becomes, okay, so what's the real value of data on JSTOR? Is it free? Is it $1,000 a month? Or is it, what is it? So Schwartz essentially was trying to write a program that would go through the entire database of JSTOR, access it for free because he had access at MIT and at Harvard, then download the stuff and upload it somewhere else. And he logs onto MIT's computers. They see this activity. They kick him off. He logs back on. They kick him off again. He creates a new account, logs on. They kick him off again. Then eventually they disable his Wi-Fi so he can't get on on Wi-Fi. And he physically goes into MIT, goes into a storage closet, wires an Ethernet port in, and does it that way. So I think that there is an argument that Schwartz trespassed, okay? Not so much trespassed at MIT in the physical storage closet, but that they would kept kicking him out and he kept coming back. But whether that should be prosecuted the way it was prosecuted, I think is, is worthy of a, of a debate. And eventually, as you know, uh, Aaron Schwartz never stood trial because he committed suicide. And... Yeah, and, and so we look at it, and however anybody wants to classify his actions, they were not a capital offense. Right. And and then you look at things such as, okay, did you violate a copyright? And then if, if then it's more, is it civil or is it criminal at that point? Or the answer well, is there, it depends. There is civil and criminal copyright violations, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but again, criminal copyright violations rarely come with a ca- uh, with a death penalty themselves, unless they involve Mickey Mouse, I assume. <laughs> yeah, I guess he could pay a little bit more in, in in that case. So essentially then what we have is a set of government rules and regulations. They have evolved, if evolution is actually taking place, or maybe they are kind of living fossils might be another way to look at it. And the courts keep trying to figure out ways to apply a law that was written you know, 34 years ago and then amended from something older than that. And yet what you find out is that there still is a legal construct out there where there's certain behaviors that could be identified as criminal or hacking, if you will, and then prosecutions do take place. But do these cases represent just the fringes? Are they sort of like the IRS tax dodgers that, okay, every now and then you hear about somebody being rated for taxes, but for every person that they can audit, there's 99 people who would probably fail an audit if they were, but they just can't get there. Yeah, there's a saying in the prosecution business, you know what you call a stupid criminal? Defendant. 
So we only you only catch the ones who are, who are stupid, and 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 online it's even worse because there are so many. First of all, there are so many things that could be prosecuted as crimes that we simply dismiss. If you if you want to prosecute every unauthorized access or any time anybody exceeded authorized access to a computer, essentially the jails would be full. And in fact. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody would be a criminal probably multiple times a day. So the first one is a definitional problem. The second problem is that the nature of the Internet is such that it's not the kind of thing that you could go to the Fort Pierce, Florida Police Department or the Sarasota cops and say, hey, I have a computer crime. Arrest somebody. It takes a degree of sophistication compulsory process, subpoenas, understanding of the TCP IP, and it's, it is difficult to find somebody even if they are not trying to hide themselves. And if they are trying to hide themselves, it can be next to impossible. And then finally, you overlay on this nation states, hacker, uh, kind of organized crime, organized hacker organizations, and it's a, what is amazing is that anybody gets caught. And now we think of what we call the, you know, the, the current scourge of ransomware. And yet, when you look at the way the legal system is set up, the way that people can operate essentially across international boundaries easily and operate from someplace that is out of the reach of any type of law enforcement from the target nation, because there's no extradition treaties, and probably you can say, hey, we're not doing anything local. My ransomware does not affect anything with a Cyrillic keyboard, so therefore it can't possibly hurt anything local. Uh, is all the rhetoric that we hear about, we go, we got to do something about this. Is it merely just rhetoric or can there actually be something meaningful uh, other than, of course, people just not getting ransomware because they do a better job of defending themselves. Well, you know, ransomware illustrates a number of problems with the, with enforcing computer crime laws extraterritorially and, and the like. The first one is, where does the crime occur? Is it where the company gets infected, where the payments are made, where the demand is made, and the like, and whose law applies. And as a general rule, we use something called the protective principle of international law, and that is, if you have a computer in the United States and it is hit by ransomware, the unauthorized access, the damage, the destruction occurred where your data is, where your computer is, and that includes also in the cloud, and therefore at least that country has jurisdiction. But that's jurisdiction over the offense. You still have to get jurisdiction over the person, okay? And you got to get cooperation on, on international investigations. You have to get data forensically from, from some ISP somewhere. You have to track it back, find somebody sitting in St. Petersburg, get the agreement of the Russian authorities to arrest them, put them on a plane, get them into the United States, and then prosecute them. And if any one of those things doesn't happen, you don't have a criminal case. So it's kind of a kill chain in reverse where you've actually got to complete all these steps. And yet from time to time, you hear about some pretty clever ruses right. that get people to show up in a jurisdictional location. Or I guess, depending if you're on the other side, maybe if your plane happens to be flying over a certain country, it might be. Yeah, this flying. is what we used to call informal extradition because kidnapping is such an ugly word. Uh, and there are many there are many ways to do it. And the most common way to do it is to to lure them somehow into a 
into a third country with, with mm-hmm. whom you have an extradition treaty and the like. But even those things are imperfect. But all of that depends on the fact that you got evidence that is usable in court that you can then present at an extradition hearing. You know, it used to be there were international crimes, but the vast majority of crimes, even federal crimes, were domestic crimes. Almost every cybercrime has the potential of being an international crime. Yeah, I guess if if the data crosses an international boundary and then that sets all kinds of limits, everything from whether NSA can look at it or not to 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 that. But if we think about it more from a practical perspective, because the audience here are for CISOs, security leaders, people aspiring to security leadership positions. We find something that just doesn't look right. We go, hey, I think we've got evidence. Somebody's in our network. Somebody's doing something. It may not be as extreme as ransomware, but there's here. Do we simply throw up our hands and say, you know what, it's just too much hassle to follow through? Or do you do you have to go ahead and figure out your local law enforcement? Do they have a clue? Do you buy a couple of tickets to the policeman's ball and start asking them about? Well, a little bit of that. So the, the first thing you do is, you know, I used to be a paramedic. I put myself through law school as a paramedic. So I used to tell people that um, I, I was um, such a good lawyer that I could chase my own ambulances. Right. <laughs> and uh, so there's an old saying as a paramedic that the first thing you do in any emergency situation is take your own pulse. And so what you need to do is to decide what is a successful resolution of this. If you're a CISO and you're having an incident, whether it's a ransomware, a data breach, DDoS attack, whatever else it is, the first question you have to ask yourself is what is a successful resolution? And by and large, what people want is make it stop, Mm -hmm. mitigate the harm, make sure people don't know about this unless I am required to tell them about it, fix the problems that caused it, and move on. Oh, and maybe, you know, beat, beat the living daylights out of the people who did it if I can. But that's way down on the priority list. Yeah, and I remember years ago, back before you know, enough people, a lot of people doing computers in the mainframe days, you'd catch somebody doing something that they weren't supposed to do, whether it's computer crime or salami slicing right. off of the mainframe by taking the round off. And the embarrassment that would attach to a criminal case about an employee at a bank was such that the bank would pretty much say, look, here, we're going to give you a letter of recommendation in two weeks salary go be somebody else's problem and just agree never to talk about it again right now now we're we're more likely these days to prosecute insider fraud but the truth is a lot of what get prosecuted as insider fraud is not actually insider fraud it's employees of the company who are planning on leaving the company and planning on taking with them something that they think will be useful when they leave that the employer doesn't want them to take. And that may be client lists, it may be forms or documents and stuff like that. And those things get sued civilly. See, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is a criminal statute that allows for civil damages. So you see a lot of cases involving lawsuits by companies against current or or past employees for simply doing stuff that they're not allowed to do. Now, if it's a fraud, a theft, you can prosecute those as fraud or theft. But a lot of this stuff is just misuse of a system, doing stuff that they weren't permitted to do. 
And I think that's a fundamental misuse of the computer crime statutes. So, you know, it's a matter of fitting, if you will, the crime to the statute in at the end of the day, because if you go back far enough, I mean, you and I are old enough to remember working on computers back in the 70s and 80s that uh, there really weren't any real legal frameworks out there, but yet there was so rare to have anybody trespass or go across the line. So, that, you know, what you would prosecute people for back then is mail fraud, wire fraud, mm-hmm. theft. You even prosecute people for theft of computer time because people paid over the internet. They paid to use other people's computers. Yeah, the timeshare fees right. that you get at the end. And then you could say, hey, there's a dollar value. And in the worst case, you might argue the electricity consumed. That's exactly right. And in fact, the cuckoo's egg case was was a time value of 75 cents. And Cliff Stoll mm-hmm. calls the FBI, says, I'd like to report 75 cents of computer time being stolen. And you can imagine them jumping into uh, uh, to, to <laughs> investigate that kind of case. But Cliff's an astronomer, and as a result, that little tiny delta from here to there, I mean, that could be Pluto. It could be the next planet out there, just seeing some little small change, and yet the average person is just going to not care about that. Well, and that, But, but that also that... shows you that small anomalies on, mm-hmm. online can be indicia of much bigger issues. And one of the problems we have here is that we are now in an era where Everything is an anomaly. We have so much data that shows so many things going on that we are completely overwhelmed. So when we look for early signs of intrusion, early signs of lateral movement, all the indicators that might suggest that perhaps some ransomware operator is kind of going low and slow and trying to take things over. And uh, then it also kind of brings up the question, let's go Let's go to ransomware for a moment. Sure. So the history of ransomware has traditionally been that of an attack on availability. You you have data. Now your data is encrypted. You want it back. You purchase a key. Someone offers you a product in exchange for cryptocurrency. You decrypt your data back up and running. Well, for every action, there's a reaction. So the reaction is, let's go ahead and do a better job of backing up. And eventually we get to the three, two, one, where you get three copies of your data in two different types of media uh, or in two different locations and make sure that you can go ahead and recover from those. All right, great. Then what's happened is the ransomware operators have now shifted over to making it a confidentiality right. attack. Hey, we, ro- we locked up your data. Nah, I've got backup copies. Well, we got your data and we're going to release it. So if you take a look at the, you know, the ruling was about two and a half, three years ago, Health and Human Resources that said, if you get ransomware, you need to report it as a breach. And I I remember first thinking, okay, that's protected health information, but there's no evidence yet that it's a breach. Yet that seemed kind of prescient at the time as if to say, hey, did some ransomware operators look at that and go, dude. This is a good idea. We should go ahead and steal this stuff too? Or was that already well underway? So you're talking about two different issues. One is the fact that our response to ransomware and our appropriate response to ransomware is more frequent backups, whether that's Mm -hmm. archives, backups, hot sites, warm sites, cool sites, whatever else it is. And that is our natural reaction. It's a good thing to do. 
However, it creates another problem. And that is now, instead of having one database that we have to protect, we have multiple databases we have to protect. We have multiple, so we now have multiple copies of the same data in multiple locations, sometimes in heterogeneous environments that we have to monitor and protect. And, and now we're keeping an entire data set that serves no function other than to be a backup of the other data set. And because it serves no function, we're not using it on a day-to-day -day basis. We're going to get complacent. We're going to forget to protect it. We're not going to patch that system. We're going to patch the system, the main system. So we have to pat manage patches, access control, users, authentication, data backup, all that stuff. That's number one. Number two, the backup becomes a failover for the primary system. So number one, if we're, if we're backing up frequently, we are likely backing up whatever malicious code that infects the primary system to the secondary system. That's one thing. But the second problem is this. The threat actors now know that by attacking the primary system, they can force you to go to the backup. So they can now take advantage of that by forcing you to fail in a particular way. All right? Now, that's one issue. The second issue is the difference between ransomware and extortionware. Ransomware is an availability issue. I will lock up your data. I will give you the key so you can unlock it if you pay me the money. Extortionware is I have taken something from you or proven that I can take something from you. I will either release the data or release the exploit unless you pay me money. Now, extortion, where if they have taken money, if they have downloaded data, that's clearly a reportable data breach. They have mm -hmm. broken in, taken stuff, even though they haven't publicized it, they have threatened to do it. That's a data breach. A more difficult question is whether a normal ransomware is or is not a data breach. And the answer is... It depends. There you go. Now, if, for example, you had network telemetry and you got a note that said, hey, you have your terabyte client database is now encrypted and you have to pay a Bitcoin to get it back. Right. And then you're wondering, is this a reportable breach? But then you look at your NetFlow and your logs and you say, nothing ever moved out of my network, not in anywhere near that order of magnitude. Right. And so that's where you kind of make the big bucks as, a, as a, the CISO or the security person to go in there and lay out your evidence before your executive and legal mm -hmm. team to say, there is not enough here to suggest that this information was ever exported wholesale. In fact, it couldn't have been through anything that we have a measurable chance. If, so the problem with, it, with, it, with a ransomware is that somebody has gotten access to your network. And they have caused a program to run on your network without authorization. And the question is, knowing those two facts, must you always assume that they have compromised the confidentiality of your data? Okay. And in the early days, the answer usually was no, and they didn't even have That's to. That's right. Because there was no exfil, there was no effort involved. You didn't have to go ahead and redeem anything for a deposit later on. All you would essentially do is you would vend to the customer right. 256 ones and zeros in the right order. And you have to distinguish and... between an incident and a breach. Mm -hmm. The breach is the unauthorized acquisition of personal data or 
whatever data we want it's to protect. Transference of information. Or viewing. From one part. Viewing okay. it, yeah. transferring it, exfiltrating it, that kind of stuff. And because it is a privacy violation, not a data security violation. So technically, if an employee without a key walks into the storeroom where this data is stored, okay, says, oh, what's this? Looks at the file, says, oh, wait, that's not the stuff I'm looking for, and leaves, that's a privacy violation, but not something that would make any sense to 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 disclose, okay? Mm-hmm. It's, it would be stupid to disclose that, all right? So an unauthorized access to personal data is a privacy violation that is disclosable, but that raises a really fascinating question. Why should data breaches be disclosed? What's the point of a data breach disclosure? Why do we have a data breach disclosure law at all? What's its goal? Well, initially, you figure, okay, it puts people on notice, it, but what are you going to do? Go out and get credit monitoring for 12 So this is the Apollo 13 problem when they say, uh, hey, listen, the uh, the spacecraft is coming in a little bit shallow. Should we tell the astronauts? He says, is there anything they can do about it? He says, no. He says, then they don't need to know. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the evolution of why we have ransomware, all right? We have ransomware because criminals have cyber skills and they want to make money. And if it's 1985 and you have cyber skills and you want to make money, what do you do to make money with cyber skills? You way, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, way back then, as you say, if you, you get a job with a bank and then you write a mainframe program and you either do a little salami and you get the round off errors or you make some change. Right. So you, and... so you either get in the bank and steal money from the bank. Or you get in a bank, show that you can steal money from the bank, and get paid by the de- the bank to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's how, you know, that's how you make money. Yeah, it was Willie Sutton. You know, why do you rob banks? That's, exactly that's where the money right. is. Now it's and, now instead of in 1985, now it's 1995, and you want to, you have hacker skills and you want to make money. What are you going to do? Now you're in the early days of e-commerce. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Well, there's going to be websites that are incorrect and they're not configured correctly. So how are you going to make money from that? <sighs> See, I don't. I, I made a lousy criminal. I'm not thinking. You're going to steal credit ideas. card numbers. All right, fair enough. So you steal credit card numbers or bank account numbers or access codes mm-hmm. or user IDs and passwords, and you log in. If you get a user ID and password to a bank, you you transfer money. If you get mm-hmm. user ID and passwords to an account, financial account, you transfer money. Or you get credit card numbers and you use those credit card numbers to buy stuff. All right? That's when the laws were written. That was the crime they were trying to deal with. And the other thing about it is in 1995, you got a monthly credit card bill in the mail. And you would get your credit card bill and you'd look through your credit card bill. And what are you looking for? Unauthorized charges. Yeah, stuff that doesn't make sense. So if I were to tell you, hey, G-Mark, somebody hacked your credit card, you would say, oh, let me check to see if there are unauthorized charges. And when you got... And you'll have to wait to the end of the right. month till you get your written statement, and then you can take a that's look. Exactly. And that's what this these statutes are aimed to prevent, to say, hey, 
you can actually call your bank early before the end of the month and tell your bank, hey, there, my credit card number has been stolen. Cancel my card and give me a new one. And the whole point was by notifying the customer that their card may have been compromised, you were mitigating their harm because they could cancel the card before the hackers could do something bad with it. Now, of course, you look at Reg E and everything else, it's usually the banks that are on the hook, but yet there's people who walk around going, oh, I get notified as soon as I use my Amex card. I get a little thing Well, on my so you have two couldn't... different things. One that you just pointed out, which is Reg E. So the, the, the consumer thinks, oh, great, I'll call the bank and cancel the credit card because I'm mitigating my damages. No, you're not. You're mitigating the damages of the company that had the breach. And that's why they want you to know about it so that they don't have to pay all of the unauthorized charges that are used to bang your credit card. But that model no longer exists. What really happens is the credit card company notices unauthorized charges, figures out a common point to purchase, cancels the credit cards, redoes the numbers, then notifies the merchant, and the consumer is the last person to know in this transaction that, that their credit card number has. And they don't care. It's not like there's anything they're going to do about it. Yeah, and as an end user, you, you just reach for another card in your wallet if one doesn't no, work. No, by the time uh, it doesn't work, you've already got a new number. Yeah, and it's, it's one in the mail, and it's off and going. And they even you can use some banks will offer you one-time use only credit And they'll also automatically migrate all your stored cards to the new card number. So the truth is the model for data breach notification, which is to say, hey, your card may be compromised, look for fraudulent activity, has been dead for 20 years, okay? Mm -hmm. So the reasons why we do the notification are backwards. So now the question is, okay, so in 2010, what's the purpose of a data breach notification? And the purpose for a data breach notification is to say, hey, companies are doing a bad job in security. If we make them notify consumers well, it'll be so embarrassing that they will start doing something more about protecting data. So it was basically data shaming. Only slightly less to say consumers will decide, will vote with their feet. They will pick more secure companies, which is nonsense and was always nonsense. And and we've hit the saturation level for breach fatigue. Correct. And as I tell people, I wish I had $100 for every time I got a notification my card was compromised, I'd be, I'd be a millionaire. And then, of course, we got that. That, that came out yep. when they had uh, that, that breach a, a couple of years ago with, with it, uh, Experian. And then enough people signed up for it that they estimated that with the money set aside for that, less attorney's fees, did you get somewhere between three and five cents? And uh, yep. although they had the promise you get up to $1,000, but they weren't going to increase the pool based upon the number of people. Who I mean, I'm out. at the point now when I get a breach notification, I just throw it away. I said, if it gets bad enough, they'll give me a new credit card. Now, yeah, they're really and then you hard. end up, the other problem with breach notification laws is they, they really skew how CISOs protect data. Because mm -hmm. now, if you look at a company like Target, and you ask yourself the question, what are the things within its IT infrastructure that gives Target value? 
Well, Target is primarily a brick and mortar store, but it also has an online presence. So the things that Target has to have is they have to have inventory, supply, staff, right? Lighting, heating, electricity at the stores, trucks, you know, all that stuff. They all need, need, need working cash registers. They also need, to some extent, the credit card numbers of people who bought stuff so they can do uh, online purchases, right? But that's much less important than all the other things. And yet, because of our fear of data breaches, that's the one that gets all the attention, the credit card numbers and the personal information of the customers. But but it's, it skews what you protect. Yeah. Yeah. Because the CISO, our primary responsibility is to ensure management makes informed, risk-based decisions. And yet, as we look at it, that needs to be to support the primary mission or the goal of the organization, whether it's a government agency to deliver some service to the community or private company in whatever its role and mission is. And yet the presence and application or maybe even misapplication of these legislative tools, kind of almost blunt instruments, as you had said, causes us to tend to maybe advise or protect the things that could get us the most bad press. That's right. And, but and necessarily the ones that give us the best bad press, ongoing operation. Bad press and potential class action lawsuits. Mm-hmm. So look, if my credit card number is, is compromised and I go to a, a lawyer and say, can I sue? Dumbest question to ask a lawyer because the answer is always yes. But the, then the question is, what would I sue for? And of course, the real answer is, well, for a real long time, right? But... <laughs> What what are my damages if my credit card number has been compromised, but I didn't have to pay anything? What about my social security number? My social so there was another case last year in, involving uh, a TransUnion, and what happened is TransUnion had this enhanced credit report, and the enhanced credit report included not just the credit report, but whether or not somebody was on the SDN or specially designated national list. So companies could then do uh, not just do a credit report, but also to see whether or not somebody was, you know, marked as a terrorist or a money launderer or whatever on this on this SDN list maintained by the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control. And there were a number of people, several hundred people who were erroneously put on the list. So one of these guys goes to buy a, a new car and. He's denied credit because they say, hey, you're on this list. So there's a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of the people on the list. And the Supreme Court basically said, okay, those people who are on the list erroneously, who were denied credit, you guys get a recovery. But those people whose names are on the list erroneously, by the way, a federal statute required it to be accurate. All right. So you had a statutory requirement that it be accurate, a violation of the statutory requirement that it be accurate. It clearly was not accurate. They say, but here's the problem. Nobody ever looked at it. You never applied for credit during the applicable time period. So this is if if bad data is in the forest and no one's there to hear it, doesn't make a noise. And so this idea that you can have damn it, you can have a violation of the law, violation of the regulation failure to protect data, a violation of privacy, but so what? No harm. And so we focus now on what is the harm. 
So even the most sensitive data that you can think of, your medical information, right? Let's say my hospital is hacked and they get my medical records and they know that I have heart disease or cancer or whatever, or even a, a sexually transmitted disease. And they publish that on the web. And I go to a lawyer and say, can I sue? It's the most blatant violation you have. What are my damages? And it's, you know, then it's just meant to make you feel bad, emotional trauma. And now we're into that whole other thing. But yeah, functionally, it's not changing your ability to get a job. Um, if I can I mean, show that it changed my ability to get a job, then I can sue for that. Yeah, or your sexually transmitted disease uh, was not obtained at home, but it's now being uh, resulting in problems at home. But whatever it happens to so be. So it's very funny. Um, there was there was a case a number of years ago with the one eight hundred flowers. So this guy orders flowers from one eight hundred flowers, and the flowers are delivered, wonderful. And then he gets a, a thank you note mailed to him. Thank you for your recent order at one eight hundred flowers. Which his wife sees the the thank you note, and of course the flowers were not sent to her. So the guy sues 1-800-Flowers for violating his pri the privacy policy. And the court actually there ruled that he couldn't sue 1-800-Flowers because their online agreement said that they had to be sued in New York and he was suing them in Texas. Well, he never ordered the flowers online. He called 1-800-Flowers. And the, the court said, doesn't matter. You're bound by an agreement that you never saw and never read. So as we get close to the end of our time frame, and I th again, as I said, we could do this for hours. I mean, we're going to have to do another show sure. one of these days. What, what can we have in terms of actionable advice for security leaders right. in, from, from an attorney? Okay. Well, all right. The, the first thing is, I, I think the most important thing that companies need to do right now is you have relationships with vendors, suppliers, customers, third parties, and data is traveling back and forth, and network access is traveling back and forth, and this includes cloud providers and the like. You need the, the law, statutes, and regulations are not going to protect you right now. You need to establish expectations of privacy and security between you and all of your vendors. What do you expect them to do? At what level? What regulation or, or what standards do you want them to adhere to? What kind of reporting do you want them to make? What kind of insurance do you want them to have? What insurance are you going to be willing to have? So you need to establish duties of care in cyber and roles and responsibilities by contract with these entities, whose law applies and stuff. That, I think, is the most important thing because we, we cannot wait for governments to do it. So if I'm going to share my data with you, I'm going to tell you what I expect from a security and privacy standpoint. And I think that's actionable advice and uh, probably something, as they say, you take it to the bank, but that's, of course, got another meeting right. in the conversation we've had. Hey, Mark Rash, I got to tell you, that, again, I've known you, I don't know, 20 years, yep. more or whatever, and uh, looking forward to another 20 or more years of, as well. But anyway, thank you very much for your time. I know we both had really long days because we started sometime around 3 a.m. this That's morning. That's correct. Uh, as we were both speaking at a Ireland-based conference here from the United States. So for CISO Tradecraft, this is G. Mark Hardy. Again, I want to thank everybody for your time. Please continue to follow us if you're doing so. Let everybody else know where you're getting your great ideas. And until next time, stay safe out there. Thank you.